Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Cancer survivorship is not as sexy as curing cancer. We need those cures to have long-term survivors, but we need to care as much about how somebody lives after cancer. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today on the show, I welcome Shelley Fold Nasso, Chief Executive Officer at the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. It's important to note that NCCS, as it's referred to because hashtag acronyms, is the nation's oldest survivor-led advocacy organization founded during the Paleolithic era of cancer care, the time before time of 1986. Yes, the same year as Top Gun, Aliens, Crocodile Dundee, The Color Purple, and Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School also introduced the word survivorship into the lexicon because the disruptive forces behind NCCS's origin were just sick and tired of being called victims, a practice that somehow still continues today. NCCS is an advocacy group that I hold especially near and dear as it was the first group that I was introduced to when I decided to quit my career and learn what it meant to become a cancer advocate. Their founder, the late, great Alan Stovall, was one of my human mentor gateway drugs into the world of making cancer suck less. Shelley has a storied and robust history in advocacy based on personal experience and, and just an inner core of social entrepreneurship that gives her all the credibility that she doesn't even need to lead one of our time's dominant advocacy and policy organizations. Prepare ye to learn. This episode is dedicated to the memory of my friend, colleague, and mentor, Ellen Stovall. Enjoy the show. Shelly Fuldnasso, my goodness, how exciting it is to have you here on my show, Out of Patience. We've known each other a grillion years. Well, maybe, you know, maybe seven or eight since you started at NCCS or even before then. But my listeners know that NCCS, the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, has had a very special place in my heart for many years because your originator, your founder, the late Ellen Stovall, was one of my earliest mentors. And I would love to have her be a channeling through thread of good karma throughout our conversation. But first, I will start off by asking you the question of the day. Full-time mom, yeah, full-time mom with kids running a nonprofit during a pandemic. Go. Uh, well, basically, you just feel like nothing's ever done well enough, but you just <laughs> do your best and that's all you can do. I mean, I have three boys. They're 16, 13, and 10 in three different schools and online learning and 
trying to, you know, it's, and, you know, everybody seems to be busier from a work perspective under the, even though everybody's working from home um, during this pandemic, because there's the needs don't stop. Cancer patients needs don't stop. And my husband works outside the house and he's in construction and you can't really do that from home. So it's been interesting. It's been interesting, but uh, we've survived our first week back to virtual school and uh, just trucking along, trying to do our, do our very best. I think that's all anyone can do right now is do your best because if you try to be perfect or even be amazing, you're not going to succeed because it's too hard right now. Yeah. I've done a couple of shows um, around the, I, I, I don't like to overuse the word pivot, but how the nonprofit business model isn't really that flexible when the economy tanks. But mm -hmm. can you share with us any wisdom on anything unique or special that you guys kind of like had to figure out on the fly? Yeah, I mean, we're we're a small organization. I mean, people don't realize that because we've been around a long time and, and we are a nationally based organization, but our staff is small and that does give us a little bit of an ability to be nimble and we work, we work really well together, even though we don't get to see each other in person. Um, and so we've continued doing what we, our programs that we had planned for this year, but just converted them to virtual events for the events that we do, which we do policy roundtables, We do an advocate symposium in June. We had to figure out how to continue to do a Hill Day where you have your advocates talking to members of Congress during, you know, these crazy times and doing it virtually. It's been a big learning curve, but we've just adapted. And then we've also added some things that, you know, weren't part of our repertoire, but we saw as important during a pandemic, which was, you know, we added a podcast where we talk about COVID-related issues um, called Cancer Convos. We are doing a project on telehealth because so much of cancer care shifted to telehealth of, of all of healthcare. And we knew that it was sort of being done on an emergency basis and rapidly implemented, but we wanted to make sure patients' voices were being heard and in terms of what's important to patients in telehealth and how it can be beneficial, but what are the ways that it's more challenging. So uh, we added, we continued everything we were doing and added more projects on top of it, all while working from home, many of us having kids. So it's it's been crazy, but you know we know that, again, the cancer doesn't stop during a pandemic. In fact, the needs of cancer survivors are even more acute because they're isolated. They have fears of you know, of getting the disease, of, of access to healthcare. So uh, we couldn't slow down. First of all, I didn't think I understood that cancer doesn't slow down. I would think the pandemic would just end all cancers because the screenings stop, right? So when, if there's no screenings, there's no cancer, correct? I'm sorry, I'm just using well, some logic from yeah. the government and all that stuff. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, the big worry is, and I was talking yesterday with a group of radiation oncologists who are seeing people coming in with more advanced cancers because they're ignoring the symptoms. So, you know, some of the smart people that I've talked with have said that, you know, of course, we're going to have an issue with people not getting screened, but that the potentially bigger issue is the people who don't get symptoms address that may end up being a later diagnosis of cancer when it's less treatable. Of every thousand screening tests, you have a small number of cancers detected, but when somebody's already got symptoms and they're not going to see what's going on with them, and then the cancer continues to progress, we are seeing already and will continue to see later stage diagnoses. And I think that's what the the medical experts I've been talking to are more even more worried about, although of course the screening is still an issue. So I want to do a wayback machine, if you would, so NCCS was founded in 1986, 
right? Yep. So that was the year I think Back to the Future 2 came out, just for the Gen <laughs> X references out there. Maybe they, I'm going to get corrected in, in the comments, I'm sure. But to that extent, it was very novel of an idea to even consider the word itself, survivorship, you know, mm -hmm. 35 years ago. I, I'm, not, I'm doing bad math in my head. What is the origin story? I mean, I know it, but for our listeners' sake, yeah. How did that come to bear? Was it resultant of the war on cancer years later? Who were the early advocates that said this is a thing that needs to happen? So when the group of people got together in Albuquerque, New Mexico in uh, 1986 to found the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, at that point, people were still called victims, cancer victims. And it was really people weren't didn't survive cancer before then. And as some new treatments were saving some people's lives. Uh, but not without a cost in terms of the long-term and late effects of their cancer. Um, so, so people got together, including doctors, nurses, lawyers, average people who had survived cancer and didn't know where to turn for that help and support. And one of the one of the leaders was Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, who had written an article in the New England Journal of Medical called Seasons of Survival, where he talked about uh, the seasons of cancer being kind of the acute treatment phase, but then also, you know, the the after effects. And, and no one was really talking about the living with the after effects of cancer at that point. And he had that gravitas of being a physician himself. He was young when he was diagnosed. And, um, and he published this pretty seminal piece. And he also wrote a book. And he was one of the of the people who got together. There were about thirty people who got together in Albuquerque that that year to and on a kind of weekend long meeting came up with the idea for NCCS. Uh, another one was Susie Lay, who is a more than forty year cancer survivor of multiple types of cancer and an oncology nurse, and she still works with us today, volunteers with us, and is an incredible leader. And unfortunately, a number of these longtime survivors have, have passed away in the last few years, even. Um, Dr. Bolin died last fall, um, and some of our other founders have, have died in the past few years. And so um, that's been a huge loss for us. But, you know, they paved the way for really understanding, first of all, the term cancer survivor. They define people as a survivor from diagnosis onward. Um, so whether you have stage zero. It was that far back with the day you're diagnosed, you're a survivor? Yeah, that was a really kind of core part of what they decided when they founded the organization is that they have stage zero or stage four and ultimately die of cancer, you're still a survivor. And in their eyes and in our eyes, we know that people don't always resonate with that term now. A lot of people tell us that, you know, they don't like that word. They think of it in other contexts. They feel like if they have metastatic cancer and they're not ultimately going to survive cancer, they don't want to call themselves a survivor. We also hear from people who, who feel like, well, I'm still in treatment. I'm not a survivor yet. Uh, my view is everyone should use the word that resonates with them, that they feel like describes their experience. Uh, we don't tell people what word they should use. But when we say survivor and survivorship, we're talking about everyone touched by cancer. And when we're advocating for survivorship care, survivorship policy issues, we're advocating for everyone. Uh, not just, you know, some people think of survivorship as this post-treatment period. But, you know, now with new treatments, people are living so much longer with metastatic cancer People who had previously cancers that were not a very good prognosis are now living much longer. And so 
people talk about survivorship as living well with cancer, whether you are in treatment or not. And, um, and that's, I think, a lot of what we focus on. And it, it doesn't matter what kind of cancer you have or what stage you are. You want to live well while you're, while you're going through this experience. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the choose your own metaphor metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just metaphor yeah. a metaphor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or, or first of all, fact check. I'm going to fact check myself. Back to the Future 2 was 1989. So I was off by three years. I apologize. My Gen X inner nine-year-old is horrified and I retract. So with that said, <laughs> my Wizard of Oz reveal of the policy world, of the cancer advocate world, came through a gentleman named Craig Lustig, who you and I know extraordinarily mm-hmm. well. Craig is a dear friend. He sought me out. He found me. And uh, Stacia Grosso, who worked there at the time, brought me in. I met Ellen. And they asked me, like, do you want to be an advocate? My words, what the hell is an advocate? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that meant. Why is this called this word? And what, I, what my takeaway was, I mean, Ellen's on the record saying this a million times, Ellen Stovall, that quality of life is tantamount to quality of care. And that may be jargon to some people, but for me, that meant I had a chance to make what I went through suck less if there was another me diagnosed that day 10 years later. And I've been carrying that ever since. So let's talk about what has happened because you're coming up on your 35th year. You've been there for seven years. You, you've been working in the nonprofit space for a very long time. You know, you've, you're one of the few people doing what they studied, <laughs> public health policy. Look at that. You're not like a, yeah. a painter or, you know, you're doing the stuff. Where are you at in the life cycle of having entered this space and seeing that you're still here? This is an organization that has lasted for so long. Yeah, we've lasted for a long time because the needs are so strong, but, and we've made a lot of progress. You know, Ellen um, Stovall, who you mentioned, was also a a dear friend and mentor to me. She died in uh, January, 2016 from cardiac complications from her treatments over 40 years before. She's still a guiding star for us. You know, I think of her, what would Ellen do? What would Ellen think? And I mean, you know, some things have evolved even since Ellen's time, you know, some of the things that, you know, were kind of prevailing wisdom are not, are not anymore. But I still think about her passion for helping people live well with cancer. I mean, that's really, that's what she talked about. Live well with cancer, whether that be while you're in treatment or when you are 40 years out of your cancer treatment, but you still have those long-term effects. So what I think some of the accomplishments are really helping people understand why this is important and um, helping advance the science, the research around cancer survivorship. One of the accomplishments during Ellen's days was putting out a paper on kind of imperatives for quality cancer care, I believe is what it was called. And she got that in the hands of the NCI director at the time, Rich Klausner, and he read it and said, we need to start this Office of Cancer Survivorship at NCI. And Ellen was really instrumental in making that happen. And then in recruiting um, Julia Rowland to the first director of it. And I'm I'm thrilled to tell you because we just announced it today that Julia Rowland and, and Dr. Tom Smith from Johns Hopkins were just selected as the Ellen Stovall Award winners for 2020. So we will be presenting the award to both of them in November of this year. And we're really excited about that. And, and I know that Ellen would be really pleased with those two selections because those were both people who were very dear to her and 
and she really believed we're working to try to help people with cancer and really, really try to not just help individuals, but help the system, move the system along. So Julia led that office at um, NCI and helped advance the research around survivorship. And we have um, made a lot of progress in terms of understanding what cancer survivors need and what some of the long-term effects are. I think we still struggle to get people to care about it and to understand it and to place enough emphasis and money and dollars behind it. And and that's where I feel like there's still so much work to do. Cancer survivorship is not as sexy as curing cancer. And so obviously people, we need those cures to, to have long-term survivors, but we need to care as much about how somebody lives after cancer as, as the fact that we're allowing them to live after cancer. And I think that, I mean, you know this, Matthew, but I hear this all the time from cancer survivors who tell me the first year after treatment was harder than the treatment itself because they're thrust in, Ellen would say, like you're, you know, dropped into a new land without a map and not speaking the language you know, that's what survivors face after they finish treatment. And there's a a party and a bell and a cake. And then now they have to try to forge their new new normal. Some people hate that expression. Some people like it. Um, But it is a new way of living after cancer treatment. Back with our guest after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So I was reading in your bios and some of the pieces written about you, by the way, you're cancer famous in case you didn't know that, <laughs> about a gentleman named Dr. Brent Whitworth. And I feel it to yeah. be appropriate to recognize him and his story and how it impacted you and drove you to do what you're doing today. Thank you. Um, so Brent was my best friend in college. We met our very first day of college at Rice University in um, in Houston, Texas, and um, and we were political science majors. And, um, and then after college, he went and worked in as a buyer in retail and then decided that what he really wanted to do is be a doctor. So he went back to medical school or back to school to get his prereqs because he was a political science major and then medical school. So he became a doctor a little bit later in life than some just because he'd taken this hiatus for a few years to work in the, in the retail business. But he, um, 
became an internal medicine doctor in, in Dallas, and he was so passionate about taking care of his patients. And, um, and he and I would talk about health policy a lot because I was working in that field by then. And I just, you know, I loved how much he cared about his patients and he would spend the time with them to really help them diagnose their issues. And I sent patients to him. I couldn't go to him myself because we were too good of friends and I just thought that would have been weird. But I knew people who went to him as a doctor and who had problems that they had not been able to get anybody to help them address. And he just took the time to help them figure it out and help them really address it. And and then one day I remember I was in San Antonio for a convention, some kind of cancer related convention. And he called me and he said that he had been diagnosed with stage four cancer and it was kidney cancer. And he, and he knew it was really bad. It was really bad. And they didn't think he would live even six months. And he was in a clinical trial for a drug that was later rejected by the FDA, but it did probably help him. We don't know for sure, but it, um, he lived 19 months after his diagnosis. So, so he lived longer than, than he initially thought, but, you know, definitely did not have a great quality of life for some of that. And the hardest part for him was he had to give up his profession and really his, it was his identity as a doctor. I mean, he cared so much about taking care of people and he couldn't do that anymore because he couldn't, he couldn't risk his own um, immune system and he didn't have the stamina and he, he tried to go back to taking care of patients, but he just couldn't do it. And so that was so hard for him. And I saw the, you know, some of the pluses of the healthcare system, the fact that he got to be in a clinical trial, he did have a, a lot of good care along the way, but he also had, I, I just saw some of the areas in the healthcare system that really failed him. Like the fact that we don't really talk about end of life like we should. And we don't get people the palliative care that they need to help address their symptoms. We don't get them into hospice early enough. Um, at the time, I had read Atul Gawande's article in The New Yorker that became later became his book, Being Mortal. Um, but it started with an article that he wrote. And uh, a good friend of ours um, had a had a sister-in-law who died of brain cancer. And they had, and she was very young. She was in her 20s. And, and they had used the article as a way for the family to talk about what's important at the end of life. And um, so I remember Brent calling me one day and telling me, Shelly, it's time. Can you bring copies of the article? Um, so, uh, the article, so I brought copies of the article to the hospital. He was in the hospital at that time. And I gave them to his partner, Bill and his parents so that they could read it. And, and so that he could use that as a way to talk about what, you know, what he knew was coming because he was a doctor and he knew, you know, he was a religious person. He prayed for better outcomes, but he also knew that, you know, he had an incurable cancer and that it wasn't responding as well to treatment. And, he so he he had these discussions, these very difficult discussions with his with Bill and his parents, and then he said to his doctor, and he was in the hospital for you know terrible ascites. His belly was swollen. He couldn't eat. Uh, he couldn't keep down food to have the scan, or he couldn't keep down the contrast liquids to have the scans that he needed to have. He was wasting away. He was you could look at him and see that he was dying, and he said to his oncologist, uh, I think it's time for hospice, which, you know, it's not usually the patient saying that, but he wasn't just a patient because he had this medical training. And his oncologist said to him, well, I've never had a patient throw in the towel after one line of therapy. And 
that just gave his, it just derailed everything he'd done in terms of having the difficult conversations with his family. Because then they all started thinking maybe there are other treatment options. And then they got all spun up on the idea that maybe, maybe there was something that could help him. And they started researching all these potential treatment options. And then the next day, he finally has the scan that he that was delayed because he couldn't keep the liquids down. And it shows that the cancer is just rampant in his, in his body. And he went home um, the ne- that day with hospice care. And he died a week later. And I just think, you know, he should have had more support at the end of his life. He should have been in hospice care more than a week. It shouldn't be that hard to get that kind of end of life care, but we don't, we still don't want to have the conversations that need to be had. And we don't want to, I guess, maybe admit when things aren't going the way that we hoped they would go. And, but by doing that, people don't get that relief and support that hospice care can provide uh, for as long as they should have it. Because, you know, I think about my father-in-law, he, he had hospice care for two years and it wasn't a mistake when he first went into hospice. He, it was a reasonable conclusion that he had six months or less to live, but the hospice care made him comfortable and helped him live well. And he did well and he lived. And for a good part of that, he had a decent quality of life. And so hospice can do so much for people, but we just don't want to have those conversations. So I'm, I'm sorry, you, I didn't know you were going to ask me about Brent and I'm telling you probably more than you wanted to hear, but it just, seeing what he went through made me want to do better for patients so that they don't have to suffer and that they can get the help that they need. I really appreciate your opening up and I didn't intend for this to be anything other than the humanity it became. And, and one of the most important things to me is showing that people who do the jobs that we do are real people. And we've been through hell and back and we've suffered and we are the community we try to help every day. So I I hope our listeners are really appreciating the fact that, you know, we are born of our own conditions and we choose the life to represent millions of people and make their lives better every day. And to that point, I do want to focus on the good news of what has actually happened, what has actually been progress. NCCS has been at the forefront of so much policy initiative change over the last 30, 35 years. It's almost hard to concretely point your finger at any one thing that hasn't been groundbreaking and institutional. But I think it's important, especially in the climate that this this show is being taped in in early September, it's going to air in early October, that the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, which again, worst nickname ever because of what it became, And with all the faults we love you still, you guys, NCCS, ran such a hell-bent campaign around the country, around the rights and the liberties and the freedoms of pre-existing condition and explaining that to people. I don't think it could ever get the attention and recognition it deserved to save millions of people the stress by getting that, that down vote moment with John McCain on the House floor. What were you thinking that day? So I was one of the nerdy folks who were up at two or three in the morning watching um, as the Senate was voting on the uh, the repeal of the Affordable, the Affordable Care Act. And I was, you know, I was texting back and forth uh, with my colleague, Lindsay, and um, we were, we didn't know what he would do. We were shocked. Um, I mean, we were hopeful, 
but shocked that he that he said no. And and I think he said no uh, in large part because of the procedural issues of how it was handled more so than uh, I mean, I think people think that he changed his mind because of his own cancer diagnosis. And I know that that probably weighed into it. But I think he was just also such a he believed so much in the process of how the Senate should work and it was not working the way it should work and the way it had worked over the many years he had been there, that he didn't want to be part of, of doing something that really was not the right way the Senate should work. Um, and and I, I'm sure that the, the actual um, substance of the issue weighed on him as well because he had been diagnosed with cancer. And we had advocates in Arizona who were reaching out to him and talking to him. Um, but it was, we were surprised really. I mean, honestly, we thought at the beginning of 2017 when, when Trump had won and both of the house, both the house and Senate were Republican, that, that it would be one of their first orders of business to repeal the affordable care act. And we gave many presentations and did a lot of advocacy over the year about it. And, uh, we always use the slide of the dog that caught the car because they had been talking about repealing it for so long, but really did not have a plan to to replace it. I think that the advocacy on behalf of people with pre-existing conditions really uh, helped people. It's interesting how the sort of approval ratings of or the uh, approval of the Affordable Care Act was was not great before there was a threat of losing it. And then people realized what they would lose. And and cancer survivors had such a story to tell because it did impact their ability to, you know, not having to be tied to a job because they would lose pre-existing condition, lose coverage because of their pre-existing conditions was a huge benefit to cancer survivors and knowing that they wouldn't be discriminated against in their rates. And uh, I just remember thinking as we saw the House moving in, in the spring of 2017, as we saw the House moving toward their repeal efforts, thinking, you know, what can we do? We're small. We're not, you know, the some of these huge advocacy organizations, but what can we do? And I thought, we, I know that there's a lot of cancer organizations that really don't have the, they're focused on serving patients and, and raising money for research. And they don't have the time to follow the ins and outs of everything going on on Capitol Hill. And so could we try to help be that you know, back back end for them of like following what was going on, letting them know what they need to do, giving them the tools to like tell their constituents to make the calls. And could we, you know, reach out to everybody that we could think of and get them to sign on to something, a social media campaign that we could promote and have, you know, we started with 20 organizations and then 40, you know, we built up to having 40 or 50 cancer organizations signing on to these social media campaigns telling people to call their members of Congress uh, about how important the protections in the Affordable Care Act were. It was really just born out of what what can we do? How can we help with this? We were we were pretty sure it was going to get repealed, but we still knew we had to do everything we could to fight against it. And um, and so that day when when Senator McCain cast that vote, I mean, it's just an iconic, you know, image of him doing the thumbs down um, and kind of putting the nail in the coffin on that version. I mean, they, they certainly tried other avenues to repeal it, but, um, but here we sit today and it still provides people protections and it's not perfect. There's still, you know, it still costs too much. There's still a lot more work to do, but at least people who have cancer, a cancer history or any other preexisting conditions know that they have some protections that they would not have without the Affordable Care Act. For sure. The Senate downvote heard round the world. And I will tell yeah. you, I just for our listeners, I know this is audio, but 
I, I remember working with you on that campaign, rallying, you know, those 50 groups and you had created like a, maybe like an image, right? Of like, mm-hmm. and then there were like, maybe there were six logos and then there were 14 logos and the logos kept getting smaller and smaller because mm-hmm. yeah. like all the, it's like, you're, <laughs> how many logos can you cram on a NASCAR? And by yeah. the end of it, it was like, it, it was indecipherable, but that was the best part because it made like this mosaic of mm-hmm. all the groups and it just really speaks to how, you know, it's so easy to overblow what the word coalition means, you know, like coalitions mm-hmm. don't work. You guys have proven for 35 years that when done right by the people, with the people and for the people, coalitions can actually work. Mm-hmm. In, in the time we have left, this is a loaded question and there is no short answer to it, but you know, we talked about repeal and replace and it isn't perfect and it's been, you know, X amount of years. Is there any one or two quick tune-ups and oil changes you can do to ACA to get it on a different, better track for the next couple of years? Um, wow. Okay. So I think that some of the things that have been done over the last few years to um, that have weakened the insurance market that was required in order to keep premiums down. So um, we needed a marketplace where everybody was in because there was an individual mandate and that we didn't have peel people off. So the problem is, you know, insurance is uh, a way to keep costs down for people who would have a lot of costs, but then people who are relatively healthy, maybe don't have a lot of costs, um, maybe aren't getting their money's worth because they're paying for insurance that they don't really need. If you then offer them these products that are out of the marketplace that allow them to buy really skimpy insurance plans, then you kind of ratchet up the cost of the people left in the insurance market. And so then you have only the sick people and then premiums rise for those people that have um, higher health needs. Unfortunately, the, the skimpy plans that are available sort of off the ACA marketplaces don't really provide a lot of protection. So if you buy them and then you end up getting sick or getting diagnosed with cancer, it doesn't really provide a lot of protection. It might give you a way to sort of check off if there was an individual mandate that, yes, I have a plan, but there's no individual mandate. So it's almost like it's not even worth buying them because it's not going to really protect you if you actually do get sick. I think if we were able to do some more premium supports to help people, because I think the biggest concern with the affordable care right now is that the premiums are still too high. So if we could support people better in their premiums so that they um, that they don't have these astronomical premiums. And if they need to buy insurance through the marketplaces, as opposed to getting like employer sponsored health insurance, then uh, there's a number of different ways to do that. But I think that's kind of the biggest complaint is, is that it's still not affordable. And we never did reach all of the affordability hopes that were in the Affordable Care Act. We, we reached a lot of the access hopes, but not the affordability. So I think there are that's where there's room to um, improve over time. And, but I think that it may require undoing some of what's been done over the last couple of years to, to peel people out of the marketplace and then just make the marketplace more affordable for everyone. I'm not going to start a podcast called ACA 2.0, but <laughs> if I were, I would do it with you. Thank you. Shelly Fuld-Nasso is the Chief Executive Officer at the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, and we're dedicating this episode to the late Ellen Stovall. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. 
Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>